Father, we come into your holy presence tonight grateful that we have this opportunity to stand before you. We know that if you should mark iniquities, none of us could stand, that we would be instantly slain by your wrath, that we are deserving of that, that your wrath and curse should be upon us because we have in so many ways not lived in submission to you. We haven't lived in a way that shows trust towards you. We have continually lived contrary to your own character and broken your laws. And we confess this to be true, Father. We read it in your word and we know it in our heart of hearts as well. That we are unworthy of any of your kindness. And so we thank you that tonight we can pray to you and call you Father. And that we can do that with very little thought of it. Just with the assurance that we can come right before you and stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that we have this standing and recognize that it is because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we thank you for his perfect life, for his obedience. And we thank you for the way in which he did your will and pleased you in all things. We do pray that you would see his righteousness as our own, even as you graciously lay our sins upon him, that they might be atoned and carried away. Father, we thank you for the word of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we study tonight. We ask that you would make it precious to us, that we would study it with full intent to obey it, that we would be meticulous in our attention to it, that it would never become old hat to us. We pray tonight that you would strengthen us through our study and excite us about the good things that you have in store. Make us men and women of faith, even as we study tonight. We come to you in the name of Jesus, our only hope. Amen. We're in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and tonight, if I make it through the Bible study, I want to be humble about this. Lord willing, we will finish the 10th chapter at long last. How many months have we been on this chapter? This is incredible. But it's one of the best chapters in the whole Bible, isn't it? I know, and you're saying, but you always say it's one of the best chapters in the whole Bible. When you get into a detailed study of the scriptures, you learn to love these, these things. Uh, I'm going to read for us tonight from the 32nd verse to the first verse of chapter 11. So beginning our reading at Hebrews 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were enlightened, ye endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. For ye both had compassion on them that were in bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that ye have yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, or better, steadfastness, that having done the will of God, ye may receive the promise. For yet a very little while, he that cometh shall come and shall not tarry. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrink back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that shrink back unto, part, unto perdition, 
but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. And thus far the reading of God's word. I've had a particularly bad day, one of the worst. And so in preparing for this Bible study, I just want you to know this passage is really a, a neat passage. It's a great reminder of the, of the substance, the foundation of our Christian lives. And um, as I expound it to you, I trust that you too will gain the kind of strength from it that I not only need today, but many days in trying to pastor and teach and, and do things that often because of human weakness and frailty can prove to be a um, disappointing experience need to remember that we're disappointed not only with others, but with ourselves and with uh, the difficulty of living a life of perseverance in the midst of affliction and adversity, that the victory is won by faith. Let's talk about that for a while here. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10, early in chapter 10, talks about the high priestly work of Jesus Christ and about his atoning sacrifice talks about the new covenant and then in verse 19 exhorts the readers to a Christian lifestyle that we spent some time studying in previous studies. A lifestyle of boldness in prayer, a lifestyle of um, living with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, holding fast the confession of our hope, considering one another, provoking one another to good works, and not forsaking are assembling together, as the custom of some is. Now, the custom of some now brings the author to warn his readers in verse 26 that if we commit the unpardonable sin, if we sin willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice for sins, but rather the fierceness of God's wrath is our expectation. In verse 30, we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is the nature of the warning in the middle of chapter 10. Don't fall back. Don't shrink back. Don't fail to press into the promised land. Don't give up your Christian confession. Verse 32 is something of a... Um, personal and practical reinforcement of the theological exhortation that has just been received about not falling back. The author says, don't give up because you've paid a price already. Call to remembrance what you've done. In former days, remember the days of their first love, the days of their conversion, and I think we all probably had heavy hearts when we studied this last week because we can remember how enthusiastic and much more consistent in many ways we were when we first became Christians uh, now that we've become kind of accustomed to the faith, maybe a little apathetic to the precious truths that just energized us when we were first believers. He says, remember those former days after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, and he details this, and we were able to date the book pretty exactly. As we know in chapter 12, he will say, you have not yet resisted unto blood. A time of widespread martyrdom has not come, which would be about um, in the mid-60s, but it is a time when Christians have begun to suffer 
uh, under Nero, undoubtedly, made a gazing stock. They're, uh, they've been thrown into prison. Uh, their possessions have been spoiled, have been confiscated from them. And the author says, don't cast away your boldness, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of confidence. You have need of steadfastness. My translation has patience, and in the archaic Old English, patience is a good word, but we tend to think of patience as kind of a passive endurance of things that are going on, but the author is thinking of something dynamic, uh, something pressing on. You have need of perseverance. You have need of steadfastness, that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now we come to our verses for consideration tonight. Verse 37, For yet a very little while... He that cometh shall come and shall not tarry, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrink back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. This, as it turns out, is a um, quotation from the Old Testament, a lengthy one, and it's a quotation most everybody should know if you have any marginal helps in your Bible. It's a quotation from Habakkuk, chapter 2. But it's a conflation, actually, of two quotations from the Old Testament. The introductory remark comes from Isaiah's prophecy, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. The author, in my introduction I indicated, the author um, has called his readers to steadfast endurance, to a kind of confidence and patience that is necessary to live the Christian life. But now what he wants to tell us is that this confidence that characterizes the Christian life is not to be taken as self-confidence. It's rather to be seen as trust in God. The author is calling them to perseverance. He's calling them to obedience. But now the point is made, and very strongly, that it is trusting perseverance. It is trusting obedience and steadfastness. It's a trust that is not in our own ability to endure a trust that does not rely upon our own sufficiency, but a trust that comes, uh, uh, the strength that comes from trusting in God and God alone. He has just said in verse 36 that if you, that you have need of steadfastness, that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And yet the reward of which he is speaking is not a reward that comes because of merit, does it? He's not meaning to suggest that there's some kind of human um, endeavor that we put forth and this uh, now warrants or merits God's reward in our lives. In verse 19 he says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So he knows our boldness, our steadfastness, our endurance is because of the blood of Jesus. So this author is not about to teach works righteousness. He's not about to teach that the obedience and the doing of the will of God and the perseverance that he's been so adamant about stems from a kind of um, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can attitude. It comes rather from saying I know I can't and so I have to trust in God. And it's in trusting God that one receives the strength to endure persecution. It's interesting. Try to do it in your own confidence. Try to do it in your own strength and you'll be broken by the adversity that will come against you as a Christian. Do it in the strength God gives because you trust Him to meet the challenge that you can't meet and nothing can overwhelm you.
One of the paradoxes of the Christian life, but a beautiful one, one worth reflecting on. The eternal reward which comes to God's people is appropriated by faith, the author says. Faith or confidence, not in myself, but in God's work on my behalf. And the author is demonstrating this by a quotation from Habakkuk prefaced by some words from Isaiah. You learn how precious the Bible is to the writers of the New Testament when you see how they bring together just bits and pieces of different verses to make their point. So we're going to look at both of these passages and uh, see why the author could do this and do it very legitimately. The opening expression, for yet a very little while, comes out of Isaiah. I mean, it's just a little clause. Turn back to Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. What is the situation in Isaiah's day, which is quite a bit before Habakkuk's, by the way? Are things going well in Israel in Isaiah's day? Is, uh, is the life of the man who is righteous an easy life in Isaiah's day? Isaiah says, no. Righteousness has fallen in the street. All the princes are wicked. This is a city of harlotry. It's a terrible city. The Jews have virtually apostatized from God. And is it a day of external peace and prosperity? No. It's a day in which uh, Israel, uh, Judah in particular, is facing the scourge of uh, exile and captivity. Not a good day at all. And yet there is comfort in the prophecy of Isaiah for those who truly are God's people. And notice how it is expressed in verses 20 and 21 of this chapter. God says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself for a little moment. That's where the author of Hebrews picks it up. For a short while, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, Jehovah comes forth out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Isaiah gives this reassurance from God. God will arise. God will come. A day of uh, balancing the scales of justice will be here. And so he says, yet a little while. Enter into your chambers, hide until the indignation pass over you. Yes, it's a terrible time. Judgment is in the land. But God will vindicate. God will arise and all those who are lawless will be punished. And so the sufferings of God's people are going to pass shortly as God breaks forth in judgment against the wicked and in so doing vindicates those who are truly his people. And so the author of Hebrews says, yet a very little while, but a moment, and something will happen. I think this expression that the time will be short, that something is going to happen soon, probably harkens back to verse 25 of Hebrews 10, where there the author had said, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. He's already within the short compass, uh, literary compass, this passage. 
said, there's a day that's coming close. It's drawing near. It's drawing nigh. And now he says, yet a little while. It'll be but a moment. It's impending. A day when God is going to vindicate his true people. God will arise. And he will judge the wicked. In verse 25, what day was the author referring to? What conclusion did we come to about that? Paula? In verse 25, what is the day that's drawing near? Yes. I believe that though many commentators (coughs) wish to interpret that as the day of judgment drawing near, and it's not impossible, but I think that's an awkward interpretation. It's much more likely that having spoken of there being no more sacrifice for sin, the day that's drawing near is the day in which God will openly show that these sacrifices are no longer acceptable. He will destroy the temple system as the Romans come in and judge the Jews. Again, one wicked nation being used by God as the stroke of judgment against another wicked nation claiming to be God's people as a way of God saying, you're not my people. For the Savior came unto his own, and his own received him not. And as he was taking his cross up to Golgotha, he told the women, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Because if this happens when the tree is green, what do you think will happen when it's dry? Jesus said to those who would persecute him at his trial, he said to those who blasphemed him by saying he blasphemed God, that they would see him within their generation coming upon the clouds. A day of judgment will come where the Jews will pay the price for their rejection of the Messiah. I think verse 25 is a reference to that, and very likely verse 37, quoting Isaiah, yes, it's a time of suffering, yes, it's a time of affliction, but a time of vindication is coming. It's near at hand. There's another reference to that, that it was coming. Well, anyway, having introduced this yet a little while, he now gives an extensive quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let's turn back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is um, a 7th century prophet, 7th century B.C. And I'm wondering if anyone would like to be brave enough to summarize the theme of the book of Habakkuk. How does Habakkuk begin? Okay, Vicki? Exactly. Yeah. Or, um, in, in one sense, Habakkuk's upset about Israel getting away with its sins, but Habakkuk is all the more concerned about the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who are going to be used by God. And it's kind of like, God, how can you possibly use such a dirty, filthy, lousy people like the Babylonians in this way? Chapter 1 of Habakkuk, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, actually the oracle which he saw. I'll resist the temptation to expound on how an oracle could be seen. O Jehovah, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? I cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and look upon perverseness? For destruction and violence are before me, and there is strife and contention rises up. Therefore the law is slackened, and justice doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore justice goeth forth perverted. 
God says, Behold, ye among the nations, look and wonder marvelously on doing a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, and march through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their uh, dignity proceed from themselves. Habakkuk's response, I thought I had something to complain about that you were not judging Israel. Now I'm even more perplexed, God. How can you possibly judge Israel with the Chaldeans? Verse 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Jehovah my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Jehovah. Thou hast ordained him for judgment, and thou, O Rock, hast established him for correction. Thou that art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and that canst not look on perverseness, wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy peace when the wicked swallow up the man that is more righteous than he. And so Habakkuk is concerned about how the righteous have trouble from within and from without. It's a time of suffering, a day of adversity, and yet a promise of deliverance comes. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, For the vision is yet for the appointed time, and it hasteth toward the end, and shall not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright in him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And so Habakkuk is given a message very similar to Isaiah's. The time of correction is coming. It won't delay. God will vindicate. God will judge. The time of punishment is going to be upon you. And at that time it will be evident that the righteous live by faith. And so there's a, a, a close parallel between the message of Isaiah and Habakkuk which is interesting because the author of Hebrews brings the two together. He conflates the two, and yet you've got to study them to see how they really are parallel. But we need to study Habakkuk even more because um, the Hebrew for Habakkuk refers to a vision of divine judgment and vindication. That is, Habakkuk is talking about an event that will surely come and not long from now. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Habakkuk, which is pretty much authoritative for the author of Hebrews, by the way. He used the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's pretty much provable from the way he quotes Old Testament passages. The Septuagint personalizes Habakkuk's prophecy. The Septuagint doesn't refer to an event that is coming. It refers to a person who is coming. Obviously, the event of judgment and vindication has no substance apart from the person who will come to execute that judgment, so that the coming of the event is just as much the coming of a person. And for that reason, the Septuagint personalizes the prophecy. Rather than it will surely come, the Septuagint reads very clearly in the Greek, he shall surely come. And then the author of Hebrews takes it a step further. He not only uses the Septuagint's personalized version of the Hebrew, so that the event now is a reference to the person who will bring that event about, but the author of Hebrews adds just one definite article in Greek. 
and encouragement to those of you who have studied Greek. Don't think that those little bits and pieces of things you learned are unimportant. He adds only the definite article to the Septuagint and creates now the expression, the coming one will surely come. And why would he do that? Because the coming one has definite messianic overtones, doesn't it? Uh, you can perhaps see that if you turn to Matthew 11, verse 3. One of many passages that would prove it, but Matthew 11, 3 is a nice illustration. Verse 2 says, When John heard in the prison the works of the Christ, he sent by his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that cometh? Or look we for another. He that cometh, you see, was a technical expression for the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. And so the author of Hebrews takes from the Septuagint of Habakkuk the one who is coming and refers to the coming one. Okay? The Messiah is going to come. But now he is not talking about the Messiah. Oh, I, I should add as well that rabbinic authors interpreted Habakkuk too as a reference to the Messiah. So it was not an illegitimate expectation that the author of Hebrews would read it that way too. The author of Hebrews has us understanding that he that cometh shall come and shall not tarry. Okay, Isaiah has said, Habakkuk has said, God is going to intervene. It'll be a short while, but God's going to intervene and he will vindicate the righteous. He will judge the wicked. Author of Hebrews says, in quoting that, the Messiah is coming. He is going to vindicate you. But you need to understand who's going to be vindicated. Verse 38 actually transposes the two clauses which appear in the Septuagint of Habakkuk. By that I mean, in Habakkuk we read, uh, the one who is puffed up, God has no pleasure in it. And then we read, the righteous shall live by faith. The author of Hebrews reverses that. He talks about the righteous living by faith and then talks about the one who is puffed up. But he also treats the Hebrew, actually the Greek expression, he who is puffed up, and interprets that as he who shrinks back. <laughs> it's kind of humorous because one is an image of being puffed up and the other is that of you know, shrinking back. But it's a legitimate interpretation because what the author of Hebrews believes is that the man who is swelled up with self-sufficiency is precisely the man who, being blind to the need for trust in God's work, will not patiently endure, but rather shrink back under adversity. The man who is puffed up, that is to say, broadly, the man who trusts himself rather than trusting God, is the man who, under adversity, will shrink back. And so it's really not at all illegitimate to interpret the expression that way. And what we learn is that God has no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, or as Habakkuk says, the one who is puffed up, who is self-confident. So the main point is now reached in the Habakkuk quotation. We've been setting this up. And the main point is that precious expression, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk, uh, the Hebrew, can read, the righteous one, or my righteous one, shall live by faith. The righteous one and the just are the same. Most people don't understand that because they don't know that in Hebrew and Greek, just 
and righteous are the same word. Okay. Dikiasune. The just one is also the one who has um, righteousness. Same word. The man who is accounted righteous by God is the man who, in Hebrew and Greek, is justified. To be justified is to be accounted righteous by God. And who is the man who is justified in God's sight? He's the man who abandons all pretensions, abandons all self-sufficiency, and lives his whole life in an attitude of trust toward God. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Keep a finger in Hebrews. We'll be going back and forth. But in Galatians 2, 19 to 21, Paul expresses this theological truth about uh, abandoning self-sufficiency and living your whole life in an attitude of trust toward God. When Paul says, For I through the law died unto the law, that I might live unto God. And here the law is a reference to legalism. Dying unto the law means dying unto the self-sufficiency that comes through the legalistic attitude that says, I will obey the law and please God. For Paul says, If while we sought to be justified in Christ, we ourselves also were found sinners in Christ, I'm sorry, verse 18, For if I build up, I'll get it right, verse 19, I through the law died unto the law, that I might live unto God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith. The faith which is in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not make void the grace of God, for if righteousness is through the law, if it's through legalistic works, then Christ died for nothing. Paul says, I now live by faith. I live unto God. And living unto God means living in faith. And that way we don't make void the grace of God. And so the man who is justified in God's sight abandons self-sufficiency, legalism, lives his life in an attitude of trust toward God, and in so doing becomes an heir of the righteousness of faith. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, where the example of Noah is used. By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, through which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is what? According to faith. The righteousness of faith is what he inherited. And yet what he was doing was obeying God. He was trusting God. And so the righteousness was not the righteousness of his obedience. It was the righteousness of his trust that led him to obey. Turn to Romans, the fourth chapter, verses 11 and 13. You'll see that same expression, the righteousness of faith. Romans 4, verses 11 and 13. Speaking of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was in uncircumcision, that he might become, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be in uncircumcision, that righteousness might be accounted unto them. A seal of the righteousness of faith. And yet, 
that faith was demonstrated how? In his circumcision. And he's doing what God told him. Verse 13. For not through the law was the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he should be heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith. So the author of Hebrews is teaching the very same thing as Paul when he tells us from Habakkuk that God's righteous one shall live by faith. We become heirs of the righteousness of faith by the grace of God. The man who shrinks back, the man who shrinks back is one who renounces the life of faith. And the man who renounces the life of faith under adversity, shrinking back, renouncing his Christianity, not living obediently, this is the man in whom God can have no pleasure. Is that because this man hasn't earned enough brownie points with God? No. It's because only faith pleases God. How do I know that? Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of them that seek after him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. God's not pleased with our works righteousness. God's not worked with our, uh, pleased with our self-sufficiency. God's not pleased with our depending and our own strength to uh, go through adversity or to try to build up brownie points and merit before him by obedience. God's pleased by faith. And that faith makes us obey. That faith gives us steadfastness. And so we abandon self-confidence that we might have complete confidence in God. The man who shrinks back doesn't have that kind of confidence in God. And because he doesn't have this, because he doesn't have faith, God can have no pleasure in him. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to him. Yes? I was just going to say that um, it's interesting here to take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, in light of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, where by faith in Jesus, that you have been saved in that, not of yourself, but it is the gift of God. Right. So truly, uh, you know, it all comes back to the theosocratic means of, of salvation. Right. I was going to talk about Ephesians 2 later when we get to um, chapter 11, verse 1, because there are many people who think that faith somehow is causative, has some kind of merit or power in it, and in so doing, turn faith into a work, ironically, who make my coming to faith in Jesus Christ the one good thing I do, and God says, okay, I'll forgive all the bad things for the sake of the one good thing you did, you trusted in Jesus. Making faith meritorious which it can't be for the very reason that you've cited, because faith itself is a gift from God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, God won't even allow us to boast in our faith. God won't even allow us to say, well, at least I had the good sense to trust in Jesus, over against all these other schmucks in the world who uh, continue in unbelief. Because what I have to say is there, but for the grace of God, go I. I wouldn't trust him either. I wouldn't believe in Jesus either if God hadn't gifted me with it, if he hadn't been gracious enough to change my heart, to give me life from above. Can the leopard change its spots? No. And so how is it that I, who am accustomed to sin, have learned to please God? Only God has changed me. The Holy Spirit has given me life from above and faith is a gift. So even faith 
It's not something you can boast in. Which is, I think, you know, shows God's perfect wisdom. He saves us in a way in which there's absolutely, if you understand your salvation, there's absolutely no way you could ever take credit for it. All the glory goes to him. Well, in Hebrews 10, the author is making this point. You must persevere. You must be steadfast. But you can only be steadfast if you realize that God rewards faith, not self-confidence. Your confidence must be in him. And so, quoting Habakkuk, we get this expression, the just, or my righteous one, shall live by faith. Those who do not live by faith are not justified by God because, not living by faith, they seek to justify themselves. All right? If you're not saying it's only God who can take care of my need, then you're, in a sense, justifying yourself. And if you justify yourself, God will not justify you. He'll only accept his own justification, which is gracious and based on your trusting him. Paul likewise cites Habakkuk 2.4 to establish the doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, he does it in two passages explicitly, and I would argue he alludes to Habakkuk in a third one. Let's just look at all three of them. Romans 1, verse 17. Hopefully you know this passage from Romans 1, this famous one, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith, as it stands written, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. And who was set free from the bondage of works righteousness and a condemning conscience in the reading of this verse, famous in Western Christian history? Martin Luther, exactly. He said, finally the light broke in on him, he wrote, when he read these words, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Not by feeling bad about themselves, not by going through penance, not through all their good works and merit, not through the Hail Marys, not through the indulgences, but by faith. It's the one thing God accounts. And it's what he gives, and it produces a life of obedience and doing the will of God. But it cannot begin with obedience and then faith tacked onto it. It must be an obedience born of confidence in God, an obedience that arises from faith. And Paul quotes Habakkuk in Galatians 3, verse 11 also. Not too surprising, right? The two epistles that hammer away at the doctrine of justification, Romans and Galatians, the two books where Paul quotes this, Galatians 3 at the 11th verse. Now that no man is justified by the law before God is evident, for, and then he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he tells us in verse 12, and this is important, but the law is not of faith, but he that doeth them shall live in them. Those who are trying to keep the law are not trying to keep the law because they're doing it out of a heart of faith. The legalists, he says, are not of faith. They're not doing this because it arises from their confidence in God. They're doing it because it arises from their confidence in themselves. Then one more passage, Philippians 3.9, where he doesn't explicitly quote Habakkuk, but the sentiment is the same. 
Paul says that he wants to be found in him not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Righteous by faith. That's a good little expression to keep repeating to yourself. Righteous by faith. The just shall live by faith. Those who are accounted righteous in God's sight are accounted righteous for the sake of faith. And so notice how faith and works are integral to true justification according to the book of Hebrews. As I introduced it to you, the readers have been called to obedience. Chapter 10 says that we must do the will of God. We must not sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth. Verse 36, we have need of patience that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So the author is exhorting us to obedience, to steadfastness, to perseverance, if we would not undergo God's vengeance. And yet, he insists that this obedience arises from a heart of faith, because he then adds that God's not pleased with those who are puffed up, because they will shrink back to perdition. God's pleased only with those who are righteous by faith. And that leads then, beautifully, into the discussion of men who lived, what? Obediently by faith, all of chapter 11 kind of a shame that some preachers wanting to preach on faith will begin with chapter 11 because that's in our English Bibles where the chapter division is. I would argue strongly that if there's going to be a chapter division, it should be up higher. At verse 37, at least, probably back up to verse 32, is where the thought begins that leads into what we call chapter 11. He's just hammered away at what? Obedience, steadfastness, Doing the will of God will be born of a heart of faith. And then chapter 11 gives examples of men who by faith did this, by faith did that. You notice, it's out of the heart of faith that Noah prepared an ark, that Abraham went into a faraway country, that men were willing to endure persecution and so forth. Is chapter 11 a call to some kind of mental act called faith? No, it's a call to obedience, and yet it's obedience that's described as faith. Modern evangelical church, I don't know if I'm really getting my point across as clearly as The modern evangelical church doesn't see how those two go hand in hand. It's, you know, one is set over against the other. There's this kind of inner act of faith, and then there's these other sorts of acts that we call obedience. And they're set over against each other, but nothing could be further from the mentality of the author of Hebrews. For what he says is that life of doing the will of God, that life of persevering obedience, arises from a heart of faith. And so by faith men do things. It's not by faith they are saved and then apart from doing anything. Of course, their being saved isn't based on their doing anything. Their being saved is based on what? The grace of God. But the faith that God's grace gives is a working faith. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, is the best testimony in all of Scripture to that. Of course, there's another very direct testimony to it in James the second chapter, right? What does James say about the faith that professes things but then doesn't work? It's dead and worthless. And is a man justified by dead faith? That's the question I'd like to ask in our presbytery exams of candidates who so often, you'd think after the Protestant Reformation and 
years and years of dogmatic writing on this subject could have this worked out. But they'll come before us and they'll say, oh, you know, men are saved by faith, not by works. Is it works has nothing to do with it at all? Well, salvation is not based on works. And we'll say, well, that's very true. Is salvation based on faith? Is faith then become meritorious? Oh, no, no, faith is the means. It's not the foundation. We say, okay, well, then where do works fit in? Well, it's apart from works. Yeah, in the sense that works are not meritorious, but where do works fit in? And they get all messed up. And so sometimes I'll stand up and say, well, tell me this. Can men be saved by dead faith? No, no, no. Well, what's the characteristic of living faith? It's obedient. Does the light, you know, break through the darkness yet? We are saved by living faith. The faith that chapter 11 des describes. By faith, men were sawn asunder. By faith, they moved mountains and, and fought armies and, you know, went into faraway countries and built arcs and so forth. By faith, they did these things. They didn't do it through self-confidence and being puffed up. They did it by trusting God. Okay, verse 39, chapter 10. But we are not of them that shrink back unto perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. That should be comforting to you, that though the author has issued some very stern warnings about apostasy, the author is also confident that a genuine work of grace had begun in the lives of his readers. Chapter 10, I mean, just look at that, verse 26 and following. No more sacrifice for sins if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth. Horrible, horrible threat. Terrifying to us if we take it seriously. And yet he immediately, well not immediately, but I mean in the same context, adds that we are confident that you are not of those who shrink back into perdition. He warns them, but he says, I'm sure that your hearts are right with God. In chapter 6, the well-known passage where the author threatens about the unforgivable sin, those who crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame, and there's no room left for repentance and so forth. You notice how verse 9 carries on right after that horrible threat about apostasy? But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. He threatens them, and he says, but I'm persuaded that you're going to do okay. I'm persuaded that God has done a work of grace in your hearts, and he'll perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. And so he does in Hebrews chapter 10 as well. But we are not of them that shrink back into perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. Unfortunately, the word soul is in my translation. Does anyone have a different translation for the word soul? Oh, that's too bad. Because, you know, we read this in Greek terms, I'm afraid. That is Greek philosophical terms. Obviously, it's in Greek in the language of Greek. But um, the soul here means life. Okay, It doesn't mean the immaterial part of man in, in some distinctive sense. And so what the author says is, uh, but we are of them that have faith unto the saving of our lives. You see, all of our life is a life of faith, and we are saved because of that. And then chapter 11, again, I purposely have not made this the beginning of another Bible study, because I want you to see how it flows right into it. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. 
What is faith? Well, we could open up a real can of worms if we pursued that question. What is faith? What are some common misconceptions of faith? Well, faith is believing what you know ain't true. That's what uh, George Bernard Shaw said. I think it was George Bernard Shaw, some cynic anyway, who said that, uh, you know, faith is just a matter of going contrary to your better reason. Faith is just kind of like a leap in the dark, or it's kind of a leap against reason, as Kierkegaard would have put it. Is that what the author says here? On the other end of the spectrum, there are people, and I'm sorry to say, some Christians, who, um, in terms of their school of apologetics, would insist that faith is based on good reason, that faith is tempered by what we can prove to be true. Faith is believing something on, you know, good grounds. And then those good grounds are always something that you can satisfy my intellect with. Is that what the author says here? The author says faith is just some kind of blind leap. Does he say faith is something that I can see and that I can satisfy my own intellect with? No, he doesn't. He says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. You should, uh, it's very important, I, in my doctoral dissertation, had to do some work on the relationship between believing or having faith in something and hoping. They are distinct attitudes of mind, but they are very close. I want you to see that uh, it's obvious in verse 1 of chapter 11 that hope and faith are nearly interchangeable. They are distinct. Hope goes beyond faith, but hope is based on faith. Faith is the root. What we learn here is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The word that I'm translating assurance in the Greek is hypostasis. Hypostasis. Understanding. Which has, a, there's a number of puns possible here. Standing under something is to understand it. Faith is the understanding of things hoped for. It's that which stands under things hoped for. Actually, there are four different possible translations. Um, it could be translated, faith is the essence of things hoped for, or if you will, the reality, the essence. Faith gives substance to what you hope for. That's the way the word is used in chapter 1, verse 3, where we read that the Son of God is of the very essence of the Father. It could be translated substance in the, in the etymological sense of standing under. It's the foundation. Now, faith is the foundation of things hoped for. It's the very basis for our hope. It could also be translated as it is in my uh, version, assurance. Faith is the assurance. It is the certitude in chapter 3, verse 14, the Greek word upostasis is used that way. And then finally, in the Greek papyri, the word is sometimes used for the evidence of ownership in a document, the attestation. Faith is the attestation, or better, faith is the guarantee of things hoped for. Well, I'm not going to bore you with all the ins and outs of which is the best linguistic option. What do all these have in common? The common thought, of course, is that faith is the, the assurance. 
is, is that which gives some kind of body to or gives uh, substance to the things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and it's the conviction of things not seen. The word conviction can be translated persuasion. The persuasion or the conviction of things not seen. You understand when John Warwick Montgomery and other apologists of that school of thought tell us that faith is based upon good reason, that that does not mean that good reason is something that has to satisfy my intellect, that I can see it and therefore can believe it. Faith is based on good reason, but by that we mean when God says it, there's good reason to believe it. <laughs> faith is based on the word of God, on the testimony of God. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. God tells me things that I can't see. And I can't even figure out how they're going to be true. One of the examples from Hebrews 11 that I love, and we'll probably have a whole evening just on that one once we get to it, but by faith, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, believing what? That God is able to raise the dead. Abraham couldn't see how, if he killed Isaac, God was going to fulfill his promise. We said, I guess God can raise the dead. So, faith is the persuasion of things not seen. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, and with this we'll have to end tonight. 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul makes it so clear that we walk by faith, not by sight. Notice that contrast, sight and faith. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, first of all, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says we don't look at the things which are seen. Our focus is on things that are not seen. Of course, you have this wonderful paradox, right? We look on the things not seen. Which is to say, we look on the things which you can't look on. Our focus is on the unseen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And then chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7, Paul adds parenthetically, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is not a matter of saying, God, show me how you're going to work out these problems, and I'll trust you. Walking by faith means I don't have to see how God's going to work it out. I believe his word that he's going to work it out. I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. 